All right, good morning, everybody. We are going to get started here with our equipping hour. So I want to invite you to go ahead and grab a seat. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all, and i um, glad you're here. I'm looking forward to this. I have been uh, enjoying uh, the study and the discussion that we're having. I'm looking forward to this morning and diving into, um, well, we're going to kind of turn a corner this morning. I'll get to that in a second, but we do need to finish up some of the discussion that we were having last week. So before we dive back in, let's just uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get to it. Father, thank you so much for your word, and um, Lord, it is such a privilege to boast in your ability to speak, and I pray that uh, as we look at your word and as we look at what you say about your speech, that we would be encouraged. I pray that every believer would benefit from this equipping hour, that we would walk out of uh, this equipping hour more confident than ever in your ability to speak. I pray that it would be a foundation for our Bible study, for our devotional life, for our relationship to you, for our boldness. I pray that as a result of thinking about some very typical and even satanic accusations against your word, Lord, that as we see what you say about your own speech, we would have thick skin. Give us boldness and give us confidence in the face of a world that will constantly marginalize those who stand with you about what you say. Lord, we understand that your word is the very target of unbelief. It's the, um, it's the chief target because, Lord, if unbelief can imagine that they can dethrone your word or mute your ability to speak, they will feel smug and complacent. And so I pray, Lord, for all of your children, that we would be firm and steadfast, whether we're speaking with family members over the dining room table, whether we're speaking with coworkers at, uh, at, the, uh, at the workplace, on the job site, or in the office. I pray that we would have thick skin and that the um, accusations of unbelief would, would just fall off as uh, they would never penetrate, they would never hit their mark because we would know what you have said about your word. And so, Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for this discussion and the opportunity we have to examine your word in light of the accusations and the attacks that are happening. And, um, Lord, strengthen our, our faith this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to briefly uh, do a little review from what we looked at last week. So if you were with us last week, you'll remember we were really looking at some common accusations against God's speech. And we read the account in Genesis 3. You remember um, Satan shows up as a serpent, and the serpent is questioning God's ability to speak by saying, did God really say? And he's questioning meaning. And then two verses later, he flat out doubts that God is right. And so Satan's assault on truth is never doubting or questioning every truth all at once. It starts with one. And it's never a flat out denial of God's speaking truth. It starts with the question, is that really what God meant? And that's what's happening today. And that's what's happening uh, perhaps you've heard that from family members. Perhaps you've heard this from coworkers. The question comes, is that really what God said? I mean, I know you can quote Bible verses at me, but after all, you are interpreting the Bible, aren't you? And so we are in the middle, well, we're toward the end of looking at some of these common attacks on God's ability to speak. And so it's really important, if you're going to be faithful as an evangelist, and let's just be honest, if you're going to be faithful as a Christian, Let's be honest, if you're going to know anything about God, about yourself, about salvation, about what it means to worship the Lord, about assurance, about any 
attribute of the God that we love, you can't know that apart from Scripture. Sometimes it's fun to just remind Christians, tell me your favorite doctrine about God that you didn't learn from the Bible. <laughs> I mean, we are talking about attacks. On, you think, oh, you're, you're, just, you're really harping on hermeneutics, John. This is the whole equipping hour, a whole eight-week equipping hour session devoted to hermeneutics. Wow. Because it's everything. If God can't speak, we know nothing for certain. If we can't interpret God properly, we know nothing for certain. So we're not talking about just some abstract discussion about hermeneutics. We can push up our glasses on our nose and say, yeah, hermeneutics. We're talking about everything for life and godliness. We're talking about a relationship with Christ. We're talking about seeing the gospel go forth. We're talking about rejoicing in a clean conscience on any given day of the week. How could you possibly know that when there's satanic questions floating around in this culture? Did God really say? So last week, we started looking at a few very common accusations on God's ability to speak. And so let's just quickly review um, on that slide there, I think that we're going to dive in at slide seven here. So these are the ones we looked at last week. Number one, personal circumstance prevents a proper reading. And this is just the uh, age-old accusation that because we all have our own subjective experience, our own background, our own tradition, our own set of fears and concerns, we bring so much to the text. And you, Christian, couldn't possibly ever actually know what God said. And uh, we saw one of those great examples, one of the many places we could have gone in Scripture. We looked at Matthew 19, just by way of example, um, because Jesus said, have you not read? And he said, have you not read about a discussion and a debate that had so many views, so many interpretive options, so many different ways it could have been interpreted, and he just assumes, he presupposes outright that a simple reading of the book of Genesis would have solved the debate. And so Jesus' presupposition is true. You could misread the scripture because of your tradition. But his presupposition is the scriptures have the power and clarity to overcome your personal circumstances. Number two, we looked at uh, the typical accusation, differing interpretations disprove the scripture's clarity. And this is the one we hear all the time, isn't it? If the Bible is so clear, if God really knows how to speak, then why do Christians disagree? I mean, why doesn't everybody, why isn't there just one interpretation? I mean, are you seriously going to hold to that antiquated notion that God speaks in the Bible and he knows how to speak when all these Christians, you guys can't even, you can't even agree among yourselves? That's how that accusation goes. And we, we're, we're basically done with this accusation, but I, I kind of ended, and I have one more thing I wanted to say. Uh, there's a few ways to answer this. Number one, the scriptures, this is no assault on scripture because scriptures presuppose and they expect multiple interpretations on their own interpretation. I mean, this is not an accusation in scripture unless the scriptures say, by the way, no one will ever disagree about interpretation. And lo and behold, they never say that, do they? God never says no one's going to disagree on interpretation. In fact, he prepares his faithful people for the divergence of opinion. Number one, we looked at last week, the first answer to the number two here, let's just call it A so I don't mess up the numbers and letters here. A, answer A. First of all, scriptures say so much about false teaching and deliberate misinterpretation of scripture. And so we talked about that. And if you, want to, if you, if you weren't here, just, just review so you can go back and listen to those. But there's just dozens, if not hundreds of texts about the scripture being deliberately abused and misinterpreted. So when it happens, lo and behold, the Christian says, that's no, that's no attack on scripture. That actually proves it right here. Secondly, this one's a little more difficult. This is where we kind of started ending last week. And that's just the discussion about what happens among true believers. What about when it's not deliberate misinterpretation? And the scriptures are very clear that true believers will disagree. And one of the reasons why is because your sanctification and your personal holiness or your relative carnality affects your ability to read the Bible. If I don't deal with sin in my heart, it affects my ability to interpret the scripture. Interpretation is a sanctification issue. Interpretation is a holiness issue. 
And so scripture, we looked at 1 Corinthians 2, we could have looked at 2 Timothy 2, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to try to end this um, eight-week series in Hebrews chapter 5, another passage that highlights the, the, the state of the Christian, his relative maturity, his godliness, his holiness, or his carnality will affect your ability to mature in your understanding of the scriptures. And so when Christians disagree, we should not be surprised. Scripture has an answer for that. C. There's another reason why there's differing interpretations. And this one's also helpful, especially among godly, holy, mature interpreters of the Scripture. And that is the fact that we just don't have all the information. We read the Scripture and sometimes we just actually don't have objective clarity. Not because any word or syllable of the scripture lacks objective clarity, but because us in our situatedness in time actually might not have access. We could have debates about certain words in the book of Job, really, really old Hebrew, where there's no Semitic parallels. And we don't know, is this a rock badger or is this a uh, chipmunk? I don't know. Guess what? The audience of Job knew. We, um, we often hear people say, oh, if the Bible's so clear, then tell me what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15 about baptism for the dead. <laughs> and I say, well, I'll be honest, I don't know. But I also know this, Cor Corinth knew. The fact that I don't know what a Corinthianized culture was doing and calling it baptism for the dead, some sort of merger between a formerly Christian ordinance and this Corinthianized culture, the fact that I don't know what that practice was, and the fact that it's not really documented in any of our extant literature, that is no slight on God's ability to speak. Furthermore, you have a lot of times where when it comes to difficult texts like those two that I just mentioned, maybe some obscure passage in Job or an obscure reference in 1 Corinthians 15 to baptism for the dead, even beyond those common examples, there are any given passage, two godly men might look at a passage and they might disagree on, on that hinge of interpretation and one might put more weight over here on, on this word and, and one might put more weight over here on this clausal connection and one might put more weight on the broader context of the three surrounding chapters and they have a different nuance or even different interpretation in those, of those passages. And so it makes perfect sense that there's disagreement and differing of opinion. But let's just be honest, and it's helpful to remember, when you hear that accusation, every time you hear that accusation, when it's true that it's a real differing interpretation, it does nothing but confirm the scriptures. Ah, yeah, it, that is a differing interpretation. In fact, that proves the scriptures, because the scriptures said that would happen. Let me show you. <laughs> so you just continue opening up the scriptures. Every time these accusations keep getting flung against the anvil of scripture, they keep bouncing off, and you just keep going back to the anvil and showing them how resolute God's speech really is. Now let's look at one more. This one's very, very important. The last attack, and not the last attack, I mean there's no last attack, but you understand what I'm saying. I'm just grouping them together into three common attacks on God's ability to speak. And this really does um, cover a lot of forms of the same attack, and that's the way I worded it is this. Number three, certainty in interpretation is pride. You ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say, wait, are you, are you seriously telling me you know what the Bible says? You're confident that's the meaning? You do, you do realize, and now this one kind of borrows from number two, you do realize other people disagree with you? Are you so arrogant to think that you're a better interpreter than they are? Or they might even appeal to Christian community and the democratic reading. I mean, there's a lot of people in Christianity who have disagreed with you here. So, what, you're just smarter than all of them? Or you got, like, secret access to God, and he just whispered in your ear, by the way, here's the truth, correct, and everyone else is wrong. I'm just going to give you the meaning. And so it looks, on the face value, it looks kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Whenever somebody else says, hey, this is what the Bible means, and you're sitting there and sharing the gospel with your, 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 your friend, and they say, no, uh, people disagree. People disagree with that. Are you so arrogant to say they're wrong? I 
remember uh, going to a Christian university's commencement uh, in, back in Florida. This is about three or four years ago. A state representative was asked to be the keynote speaker and um, a professing Christian, a professing evangelical who was on the state house. And uh, he got up and spoke and he began by pointing to Doubting Thomas as the theme of his commencement address. And he said, Doubting Thomas gets a bad rap. I'm here to reclaim doubt as a virtue. And he went on to explain that there's really, it's really virtuous because the person who has doubts about scripture and doubts about meaning is the one who has the virtue of being able to say, I at least have integrity. One seminary professor, nonetheless, says this. One should never be too casual in claiming understanding. When it comes to interpreting texts, honesty forbids certainty. Now, I gave you that quote because I wanted you to be able to read it with your own eyes. And um, that quote itself is so certain it must be dishonest. <laughs> Honesty forbids certainty. It sounds pretty certain, so I assume it's not honest. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous the links that mankind will go in his attempt to try to fling mud at the God of the universe and his ability to speak. And this is in the church. And so if I'm misreading it, and maybe it's not as certain, it's either not certain or it's not honest, it's one of the two. But the scriptures, the scriptures just don't speak like this. Let me give you one more. This is a, another seminary professor who, fortunately, was actually kicked out of his seminary after he, uh, this was, he wrote this after he was kicked out of his seminary, but nevertheless, he was teaching in a theological institution for, for a decade, and he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. Certainty is a sin because now sin is being, a certainty is being associated with pride. And everybody who reads their Bible knows that pride is bad. Humility is good. And that's absolutely true. But the problem is now they equate certainty with pride. And so then uncertainty becomes humble. And so here's what he says in his, this is how he explains what he means by this phrase, the sin of certainty. Aligning faith uh, in God and certainty about what we believe and needing to be right in order to maintain a healthy faith, these do not make for a healthy faith in God. In a nutshell, that is the problem, and that is what I mean by the sin of certainty. He views it as a problem that we would come to the Bible and need to be right, because the desire to be right is putting yourself over somebody else who is wrong, and so that's pride. What do we say about this? Have you noticed that every articulation of these attacks on God's ability to speak are horizontal? What I mean by that is, you notice how when you start questioning, um, is this really pride or is this humility or can you really know that? It's always compared to other people. It's high time to start thinking about certainty vertically in relationship to God. Let's put the proper face on this accusation. This accusation is an insult and a slap in the face of God Almighty. It is an insult to God's ability to speak, to give mankind certainty and truth and confidence and conviction. Let me give you a few examples. Listen to Luke chapter 1 in the very prologue of the gospel. Luke gives the explanation for why he's writing. And 
And listen to what he says in verse 3. It seems fitting, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the purpose of the entire third gospel. So that you may know. Huh. That sounds kind of certain. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. That's the purpose of the gospel of Luke, is that you might know and have certainty into the exact truth about the things that have been taught from the eyewitnesses written down by the apostles. That's extremely helpful. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We were here last week, but now listen to it in light of this accusation of certainty. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We've been given... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. We've been given God's Holy Spirit so that we might know. So that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words or interpreting spiritual truths for spiritual people. And he's describing that, he's defending his ability to articulate truth to Christians, saying this will always be attractive to Christians. Spiritual truths in its God-given speech will always be well-received by the spiritual. And he concludes the chapter then in verse 16 saying, who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Just take that passage right there. And think about that attack that you hear in the workplace, at the water cooler, when you're sharing the gospel with your coworker, and you hear that attack. That's arrogant. To say that you know the Bible and that you would disagree with other people who are smarter than you, that's arrogant. Start to put its vertical garb on the attack. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're saying that God does not have the ability to speak clearly, make himself known, when God himself here says, You, by virtue of the scriptures, have the mind of Christ. And having the mind of Christ, reading the scriptures, you can now know for certain the exact truth. It was given so that you might know. We could keep going. We could go go with the second... Corinthians 4, we could go to 1 John. I mean, the entire purpose of 1 John is so that you can have assurance. The Gospel of John, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. Faith in the scriptures is not equivalent to uncertainty and not knowing. Faith is equivalent with certitude, conviction. Listen to Paul. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, my life is not worth hanging on to. He puts this much value on his life. He puts this much infinite value on the gospel that was revealed to him through verbal propositions. And he's saying, I know the gospel, and I know its value, and I would gladly give up my life in order to be faithful with this gospel that's been entrusted to me. Think about the impossibility of this statement if Paul is not certain about what God revealed in the gospel. You see why this is such a satanic attack? Because wherever Christians start to get, wherever we start to get clay feet about God's ability to speak and make his mind known, we're not going to count the cost for something we don't know about. We're not going to count the cost for something we're unsure of. 
We're not going to stand firm for something that we doubt. Apostles wouldn't have died for a Christ that they weren't sure if the tomb was really empty or not. Listen to Paul again in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And then the obvious question is, well, Paul, how did you become so convinced? He became convinced of God's ability because God told him so. He's convinced from God's words. He's convinced because God has testified, I'm able. Watch this, Paul. You entrust your life to me, I'll take care of it until the appointed day and hour. I'm entrusting you the gospel. And Paul says, this is not an equal entrustment. I've entrusted you something of negligible, doubtful value and quality. And you've entrusted to me the infinite gospel. And he can say, I know and I am convinced in whom I have believed. I am convinced he's able. Paul had conviction. Fruit, fruit is the proof of our interpretation. Fruit is the proof of our ability to interpret. And um, throughout the scriptures, you regularly see the fruit of false professions exposed by the, or the lack of fruit exposing false professions. And you see fruit proving true professions. And so, one of the fruits of a biblical hermeneutic is certainty. You do understand certainty comes from humility. The only path to certainty, the only path to conviction, is to humble myself under the word of God and take him at his own word when he says, I have the ability to speak, and I read that, and I see his ability to speak, and he clearly testifies, I'm giving you the mind of Christ, and this is what it means to honor me. Honor me, I want to reward you, I want intimacy with you, I want a relationship with you, and I come under that and say, I don't care what people around me are saying, I don't care what my flesh is saying, this is true. It takes a humble man to love his neighbor enough to say, my friend, you are wrong. God does know how to speak. I am convinced of what he says. And now we've got this movement in the church where Christians are coming along saying, oh, no, no. Humility says we can't be sure. What? I've never heard a worse form of arrogance than to look God in the face of his scripture and say, I see that you're calling me to certitude. I see that you're giving other saints conviction but I'm so humble to say, you're wrong, God. Doubt is arrogant. Conviction is humble. It's time for mankind to get out of the way and let God speak. And that, that accusation is just, just rife with danger. And it's a grief when people buy into it. I think you understand so far, I mean, we, we, we're gonna get, we gotta start to transition to another, another point, but I think you understand just from looking at the attacks on God's speech that we've looked at for last week and then so far in this, this last half hour, you, you understand everything's up, up for grabs. Everything's at stake. I mean, we can talk about assurance, we can talk about joy, we can talk about, I mean, we don't even have any, any grounds to even talk about the Christian life, let alone how do we think of God and God the Son and God the Spirit. How do we relate to him? What does he want from us? What about the afterlife? What about the purpose of life? What about every answer to any question we could possibly ask? I've been a very kind of quick, quick and dirty format, giving you some biblical answers to those attacks. And you probably know where this is going. This is how, this is how satanic it gets. Because there are even people in the church who would listen to those answers, to those attacks, 
and say, oh, John, all you're doing is proving our point. Because look at what you did. You just interpreted the scriptures. And you're pretty certain. And you're, you have personal circumstances. And you bring all that to the table. And you've even given biblical answers in the last this half hour and last week. You've given a lot of answers that other people have disagreed with. And you see how satanic the attack really is? I remember ministering to a dear friend. It was a young man who I discipled for uh, two and a half years. I poured into him, put fuel in his car on a regular basis so he could drive up to where I ministered and we could buy, diagram scripture and I could counsel with him and we would talk about ministry and he was in a Christian university and trained for ministry, pursuing ministry. He was at a pretty, pretty eclectic theological environment. Started reading a notable false teacher. Started warning him. Warning him about it. I remember walking him through historic articulations of this particular theologian. I mean, we were tracing out 20 years of his denial of the gospel. And he's widely received in American and British evangelicalism. And you get to the end of, um, well, I didn't realize it at the time, the end of my discipleship with him. Uh, He was about to be married. And um, the immorality of his life was exposed. And I remember, I remember all in kind of one summer and then the beginning of that next semester, everything was just coming to light. And he called me once, he called me one early one morning uh, in the summer. He, he was actually back at home. He wasn't, he wasn't down in southern Florida when he called. He called and he just said, John, I've been working through this. I've been working through this. I've been thinking about what you said. I keep going back to what he's written. And I'm so confused that I realized I just have to go back to, what's the gospel? And at that point, he said, I realized everything was dark because this is all about the gospel. He didn't even know what the gospel was anymore. He ended up leaving the church and as far as I know, never repented. This is so foundational to everything Christian that we have to go back and kind of build from the ground up. This, this uh, question has really nagged me for years. I remember running this question by a seminary president that I bumped into in a bookstore about six years ago, and, and I started asking him about it, and I said, here's, here's my proposed answer, and he listened and kind of just took it in and just said, yeah, I don't, I don't know, John. I don't think you're going to answer any questions with that going down that road. I don't think you're going to answer any questions there. And he was just convinced that really you're never going to be able to come up with a biblical way to interpret because the Bible doesn't have an explicit statement about hermeneutics. It's almost as though because God didn't write a prologue to Genesis 1-1, you know, to the reader, <laughs> here's what you need to make sense of Genesis 1-1 and following Pay attention to these things and notice this, the way that I speak, and watch out for this grammar and watch out. And so without that, the assumption goes, there's no such thing as a biblical hermeneutic. There's no way to say this is what God would say about how we need to interpret his word. And so I walked away from that conversation just so frustrated because I knew as soon as it was out of his mouth, I'm like, I just knew it. He is so flat out wrong, but I don't know how to answer him. And I remember... um, Several months later, I was reading a book. Uh, it was a book on, uh, it was a section of a book on, on inerrancy, and an author was talking about the fact that scriptures are inerrant, and it made a statement. It said, you know, scriptures do claim to be inerrant, but actually they exhibit the quality of inerrancy even more than they talk about it. And I started thinking about that in light of the question of all these attacks that are happening against God's ability to speak. And I started realizing, you know, that's the way I started framing that up in my mind over the last few years has been this. Really, there's, it's kind of a twofold argument from the Bible. From my study of the Bible, I mean, I really 
to be, it's kind of embarrassing maybe, or maybe, maybe, maybe you'd be excited about this. I was really excited about this. I spent basically four years trying to answer that question. I read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation asking only the question, what does God say in every place that he has spoken? What does he say about language, meaning, and interpretation? And I ended up with like a, like a 50-page file just of Bible references. Everywhere God speaks about language, meaning, and interpretation. And I, I came away with just a robust confidence in God's ability to speak and the ability of mankind to be able to know we can actually interpret his word the way he wants us to. It's clear. And so this is really kind of the way that I'm going to frame up the next six weeks. First of all, the Bible presupposes a lot of things about hermeneutics. What do I mean by that? I've got, got a slide here. If you want to pull up that slide on uh, the, the biblical presuppositions about hermeneutics. What's a presupposition, first of all? Presupposition, that's a big word. The Bible starts out, and it just makes a lot of assumptions. And assumptions isn't quite the right word, but it's kind of like an assumption. Assumption is it's just assumed, it's not stated. But the reason why a presupposition is a better word is it, it concludes beforehand that this really has to be the case. These are things that the Bible presumes beforehand. They have to be true to even make sense of Scripture in the first place. What does the Bible presuppose about hermeneutics? Well, number one, language, meaning, and interpretation. Those are three aspects of hermeneutics. And it has a lot to say, and it assumes a lot, it presumes a lot uh, that, that uh, I just listed out here. And this is kind of what we're going to be looking at. This morning, we're going to start number one, and then next week, we're going to look at numbers two and three. Number one, language. It's an innate ability of God given to man when God created him in his own image. Number two, the Bible presupposes a lot about meaning. Namely, it's, it's singular and it's determined by the author or speaker. Number three, interpretation. The Bible presumes it can be, meaning can be discovered and accurately conveyed to anyone who understands the grammar and historical context of the words. And we're going to get to this later, but what's so profound about this, I saw this so consistently in Scripture, it started to dawn on me. You know what's so profound about this? Not only, this, this is so devastating to any critique against the a biblical way of reading the Bible, not only does the Scripture presuppose these things, so does every enemy of the Scripture. You realize that every time somebody wants to critique God's view of language, meaning, and interpretation, they end up proving it by borrowing from these things. Every attack against God's ability to speak and our ability to interpret borrows from these presuppositions in order to try to level accusations against God's ability to speak. When's the last time you read somebody critique, critiquing God's ability to speak or your ability to interpret without borrowing God-given language? And guess what? When they borrow God-given language to try to accuse God of his inability or tell you about your inability to interpret it, they are going to expect that you're going to take their meaning, that simple, singular, face-value meaning, and that you only mean one, they only mean one thing, and that their intention determines their meaning. They don't like it when you say, oh, I hear your critique, and I understand that what you mean is that you agree with me completely. And then they also don't believe that it's fair if you twist their grammar and take them out of context. And so every accusation against God's ability to speak and our ability to interpret ends up proving these very presuppositions. Otherwise, the only consistent position for somebody who's a critic of this is to remain quiet. And boy, what a better world we'd be living in if that were the case. If all these accusations could just be silenced. And then, um, the last few weeks of this, we're going to look at how the Bible practices a hermeneutic. And that'll be several weeks down the road. So, the Bible presupposes a hermeneutic and it practices a hermeneutic. We're going to look at how the Bible actually interprets other passages of Scripture and it models what it presupposes in the very act of interpretation. And it's just really, really fun. So, when we get to that, it's going to be a lot of fun because we can go to some, some sticky texts, some problem texts, and see how God continues to model this very view every single time the Bible interprets the Bible. Consistently, 100% of the time, I am convinced 
absolutely convinced, and so that's going to be a lot of fun. Not that we have time to look at every instance. That would take years. But we'll look at a few big ones. With our remaining few minutes, I want to go ahead and turn to this first presupposition, the language presupposition. When Satan said, did God really say, we need to start our ability to answer that question by understanding what the Bible presupposes about language. What is language? Where did it come from? What's the significance, uh, the, what is the significance of the fact that man has this unique ability? We can speak. I mean, I'm sitting here. Noise is coming out of my mouth, and you've been sitting here politely listening to me. I, I, I assume, I hope, with understanding. I, I, I hope you're not just kind of like giving like the, you know, a perpetual nod or just kind of rhythmic because you're lulling yourself to sleep. I, I, I'm assuming that there's actual transfer of meaning here, and you're, you're thinking about what I'm saying, and there's actual communication. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that animals don't do that? Oh, they do. Boy, when my dog starts barking. And the neighbor's, neighbor's dog starts barking. Yeah, and if you listen closely, they are planning the next coup against the human dominion of the earth, aren't they? They're coming up with political schemes, and they're organizing their... Uh, it's just... No, we have this unique language ability. And mankind for a long time has struggled with how to answer that. How do we explain man's ability to speak? Why do we have the ability to speak and not other creatures? In 1859, Darwin published Origin of the Species. The previous year, the notion of evolution was actually documented in print first by um, Alfred Russell Wallace, an entomologist who was you know, I don't know, grabbing flies in South Pacific somewhere, and he writes this paper on evolution, and he sends it in to the Linnean Society. Sir Charles Lyell was the famous ge geologist, who was also Darwin's close friend. He sees this document, and he says, Darwin, he says, look, I've been telling you to write your stuff down and document it, because somebody's going to beat you to it, and now there's this paper that's going to be presented at the Linnean uh, society next month. And Darwin's just devastated because he's got this theory going and he wanted to be the uh, founder of. So he says, look, you just need to write down a summary of the, what you were going to say in your book form. So his book hasn't been published yet because it hasn't even been written yet. And he's telling him, look, you got a few weeks. And he's like, a few weeks? I can't do that. Well, he cranks together this 20-page document and sends it to the Linnean Society to be presented. Now, actually, neither Darwin nor uh, Wallace were at the Linnean Society. That happened in July of 1859. Uh, but their papers were read, apparently, and it was read alphabetically. And Darwin comes before Wallace, so technically Darwin was the first articulation of evolution. Kind of fascinating. Nevertheless, as this evolutionary, you know, natural selection theory starts to become uh, more uh, discussed and more prominent and more heard, uh, several people had problems with it. Surprise, surprise. In 1861, Max Mueller had become the best-known linguist in England, and here's what he said about Darwin's theory, just by virtue of the, his study of language. He said, language is our Rubicon, and no brute will dare cross it. And then he said this, the science of language will yet enable us to withstand the extreme theories of evolutionists and to draw a hard and fast line between man and brute. In other words, for Mueller, the ability of man to use language is what sets apart man from animal. And it's a line that cannot be crossed. An evolutionary hypothesis will never be able to account for man's language ability. And by 1870, Wallace and Darwin were kind of like two, two peas in a pod. They were really uh, well, you know, on the same side of things. But Wallace began to anticipate that Darwin was going to apply the origin of the species to humankind. He hadn't yet. He didn't get that explicit until 1871 when he writes his book, The Descent of Man. But it was clear where he was going. He was going to propose that man has evolved and that we were not created by God. This is all of his unbelief from his Anglican days when he rejected the gospel. Now it's coming out in this scientific theory. Surprise, surprise. So he says, man evolved. 
And Wallace is anticipating that, and he comes out with a, he writes an essay on natural selection the year before Darwin publishes his view that man is, is also part of the evolutionary hypothesis, um, theory. And Wallace says that that's impossible. He says that natural selection cannot produce any, quote, specially developed organ, end quote, that's useless to a creature or, or that won't be used for thousands and thousands of years down the line until that creature can take advantage of it, and namely, the ability to use language. And so this led Darwin, Darwinists in this mad search for an answer to how did man have the ability to speak? The following year, Darwin's next book, The Descent of Man, was published, and lo and behold, the crux of his argument was his dog. He says, you want proof? Look at my dog. He points out that his dog was capable of abstract thought because he noticed consistently a distinct response from his dog when his dog met a do another dog, whether it was hostile or friendly. He also said that when I speak to it in a soft voice, I say, hey, listen, what is that? What is it? He starts using that voice. He said, my dog always gets on the alert. So see, dog has this language ability. It's just different than man, but he has some language ability. And I'm not making this up. <laughs> I, I pulled up the PDF <laughs> from, the, <laughs> from the 1871 version just to make sure <laughs> I was not misreading things. It's actually there. This led Mueller to mock Darwinism because evolutionists were trying to make a comparison to human ability to speak from the animal ability to communicate. And so Mueller started calling this the bow wow theory. He's like, oh yeah, the bow wow theory. It's just, you know, animals, like they make some noise and we've just done a more sophisticated job. Our noises are just, you know, their noises are more complicated than the other animals. It's just, an, it's just the, the next development. That's all it is. And Mueller's just laughing at him the whole way. Well, what was funny about that was the evolutionists didn't realize that Mueller was making fun of them. And so they started picking up on that, and they started talking about all these like, primitive sounds and noises, like a mom with a baby and say, you know, Googling noises, and they start calling that the, uh, the, goo, the goo goo theory or the mama theory or whatever. And they started coming up with all these theories thinking that, yeah, yeah, Mueller's right, he's onto something here. And the whole time he's just laughing at them, like, yeah, I was making fun of you, now you're just proving my point. Well... I, I shouldn't be so quick to, to mock Darwin because our boys have a dog named Waterloo. And he's, he's a pretty amazing dog. He's got some incredible language ability. Um, Waterloo, I, I can prove this to you by just a couple of anecdotes. Just give me two. And I realize I'm taking like, this is like a, turning into like a 10 minute documentary here on the, on, on the history of language. But this is really, really important. Uh, Waterloo is, has quite an incredible language ability. Um, he, he, he really likes squirrels like most dogs do. Uh, he likes to, you know, play with them and just, you know, help them work out, and get into shape. And so one particular morning, I take, I see a squirrel on the palm, on our coconut palm in the front yard, and I, I take Waterloo out the front door and hold on to his collar, and I say, Waterloo, what is it? Squirrel, squirrel. And he's just like, he understands everything I'm saying. His hackles are up. He is alert. He is attent. He is staring intently into the front yard. And I said, Waterloo. Right there, I'm pointing, I am pointing at the squirrel. I say, it's on the palm tree. What are you gonna do? He's... <laughs> I let go of the leash, I say, get it. He goes sprinting out of the yard with a boundless energy, he's just like, he's intense, he's looking around, he has no idea what he's doing. And the squirrel goes up the palm tree and he's like, oh, squirrel, and he goes chasing it. So obviously the conclusion is, he has an incredible language ability. We're just, he, it's just the vocab problem. He didn't know palm tree. That's all it was. That's all it was, was he did not know the vocab word palm tree. But besides, besides the fact that he has low vocab, he's got an incredible language ability. I can, if, you, if that doesn't prove it to you, I can prove it with one more anecdote. As we were driving out here uh, from Florida to Arizona, you know, we, uh, Smed told us, he's like, hey, make sure you hit some of the parks. And so we went to, um, we hit several parks. We hit one in Arizona and a couple in Utah. Well, the first one we hit was um, uh, Petrified Forest National Park. So we go to the Petrified Forest, and man, it was memorable. Um, 
I don't remember much about petrified wood, but I, we, had, we, we met a, a park ranger named Brian, and he saw us with our dog, and he says, hey, is, is your dog a, a bark ranger? I said, no, he's not. Would he like to be? I said, well, what does that involve? He said, well, it involves uh, just a couple of minutes and a professional photographer to document the, uh, the swearing in. I said, boy, I have never had more two minutes open than right now. <laughs> There's no way on God's green earth I'm going to miss this. <laughs> so uh, we went and grabbed our phones out of the, out of the car. And, and, um, and to tell this story, I'm going to be really, I've got, I've got to enunciate here. Park Ranger Brian and, and Bark Ranger Waterloo had an, it's just a fantastic exchange. It's a very sober moment, his inaugural uh, oath of swearing in as a bark ranger. Um, the, it's, a, it's a pretty involved commitment that Waterloo made. Bark is a, an, it's an acronym. Uh, as a bark ranger, you, you basically you are committed to B is bag your pet's waist. Um, a is always leash your, leash your pet. And R is respect wildlife. And then K is know where you can go. And so once we had the... Uh, professional photographer, and once we had the dog, and once Brian was sitting there ready to make the oath, Brian read the oath, and it went something like this. Park Ranger Brian says, I will always bag my poop. Bark Ranger Waterloo says, yes, Brian. Park Ranger Brian says, I will always stay on my leash. Waterloo said, and I quote, woof. I always will. Park Ranger Brian said, I won't chase any animals in the park. And Bark Ranger Waterloo said, woof. And Bark Ranger Brian then said, I won't go where pets aren't allowed. And Waterloo distinctly answered, I won't, Brian. Now, I do, under, I do acknowledge, strangely, the uh, Bark Ranger's voice was identical to the Park Ranger's voice, but obviously that would be because not only does Waterloo a phenomenal with language, he's also a ventriloquist. I mean, that's the only explanation of what happened there. But I will tell you this, it is remarkably difficult to keep a steady hand and take a photo when your dog is getting sworn in and your entire family is laughing hysterically in the parking lot trying not to embarrass the Park Ranger. That was very, very memorable. This debate about language has been going on for a long time. And I think my attempt to disprove otherwise has convinced you, if you were not otherwise already convinced, man uniquely has a language ability. I've read linguists. I've read, as I read two weeks ago, I read the story, tragically, of a PhD linguist from MIT who studied under Noam Chomsky, go off to the mission field, uh, under Chomsky views of language, thinking there's such a thing as universal grammar, expecting to find that in the tribe in the Amazon, and he did not find the components that Chomsky had labeled would be universal to every language, and so he ends up, by the, by the result of 20 years of ministering to this tribe, denying the faith, apostatizing from Christianity, and rejecting the truth. And now he claims that he was converted by the tribe he tried to save. Darwin was spared an immediate embarrassment by Wallace. Wallace was sticking to his guns that mankind alone has ability for language. And when pressed on where that ability came from, he was a spiritist. And he just claimed some sort of mystical, ethereal, supernatural handiwork that he couldn't possibly explain. And so everybody in that scientific day and age laughed at him with his spiritism. Every time man tries to explain language without God, they have no answer. Vern Poitras is certainly correct when he says, approaches that conceive of language only with reference to human beings are accordingly reductionistic. There is no answer for where we get language for what it is or why we have it. We need to quickly open up our Bibles. Genesis 1.1. We've got a few minutes left, and I want to make a few comments here from Genesis, and we'll just, 
we'll just go right up till 10 and then uh, we'll pick it up next week. But Genesis 1.1, have you ever noticed what it says about language? Let's read it together or just follow along with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does it say about language? Nothing. How profound. God simply starts speaking and presupposes that his audience knows what he's talking about. Now, you might say, oh, but John, it was written in Hebrew. And Well, yeah, but to a Hebrew ear, there is sheet, barah, ha'elohim. If you heard the same, you heard in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's in your language. When God spoke the first time through the pen of Moses, it was in the language of the audience, just like this is in your language. The point being is there's no prologue of hermeneutics here. God starts speaking to mankind, presupposing that man understands and that he's speaking clearly. Verse 3, first historical record of of spoken speech, of a speech act in time, space, and history. Genesis 1-3, then God spoke. God said, let there be light. It'd be fun to ask the question, hmm, what does that mean, let there be light? What does it mean? Well, interpretation requires an interpreter, so who's he speaking to? There's no one there. There's no one there. In fact, there's no human ear to mess it up. God speaks something into otherwise uncreatedness. All that exists is God. And God says, okay, how about this? Let there be light. Light must exist. And what happened? And there was light. Light began existing because God said it must. So let's just think about that for a second. We can't pull the 12 people who were there, and if they were Christian postmoderns from Christian universities, you'd have 13 answers to the meaning of what does it mean, let there be light. So we can't pull those people. All we know is that God said it, and it happened. So the question then becomes, what did God mean when he said, let there be light? What did God mean by it? It was whatever was in God's mind, which was what? Light. Light as we know it. The very reality that we've been arguing about for century after century after century. Is it a particle? Is it a ray? Is it, it's both. What do we do with it? Well, that that is beyond our transcendent understanding, it's just beyond our ability to grasp and put in our back pocket, that was in God's mind when he said, let there be light, and that began to exist. That's what that means. Meaning's determined by the speaker. God says, let there be light, and that's what he meant. That's what he intended. Skip down to chapter 26, I'm sorry, verse 26. Chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 26, and I'll introduce where we're going to pick up next week. Let's read verses 26 and 27, and you know where this is going. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I'm going to skip what we're going to say about verse 26 and 27 because that's going to take some time. But I'm going to go ahead and give you the slide here. So just skip forward here for a second to, I think it's the last slide if I remember right. Intrapersonal communication in Scripture. Notice in verse 26, God is speaking to himself. This is not some sort of Hebraism. Elohim is a plural ending, and that's just the way the word works. This is a plural verb and a plural pronoun. This is clearly plurality in the singular God. God is having a conversation. 
There is interpersonal communication among divine persons. And they're having a conversation about what they're going to do when they make man in our, plural, image. Communication is, first of all, divine person to divine person. And then as we trace this out, what's going to be profound is then it becomes God to man, then man to God, and then finally man to man. That is by virtue of being created in the image of God. And so unbelievers say, oh, universal grammar, there's going to be always components everywhere because it's something universal to man. Well, it is universal to man, but you're, you've already denied God from the get-go. Here's your answer. We're all created in the image of God. And then the other side says, oh, but no, there's too much distinction among language for it to be uh, innate human ability. And then you get to Genesis 9, and there's curse. Oh, distinct languages. Huh. Lo and behold. But what's so profound about this whole thing is when you understand what the Bible presupposes about language, you start to get incredibly comfortable and confident when you hear God speak in human language. He's not settling. Uh, it's the only form of communication I have. I have to go with it. It's going to get really confusing. It's perfect. For God to speak in human language to humans, it's perfect. Of course, the sin makes, it does make it complicated, but that's for another discussion. Right now, we're talking about God's ability to speak. So we'll pick that up next week. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that you can speak clearly. And once again, we just want to boast in you. Lord, I know, and if my time is correct, I believe it's even today, maybe even in a few hours, in Papua New Guinea, Zach will be beginning to teach your word. And that endeavor and the labors, prayers, and the passion of this church to get the gospel to that tribe would not exist were it not for your ability to speak clearly. Thank you for giving us conviction. Thank you for giving us your word. In your name we pray. Amen.